Okay, so um, this week we were having a discussion in the school common room, that's the school staff room with the other teachers, and the question came up is uh, whether we as teachers felt that we could scare an entire school and really kind of you know, tell them off and discipline them and make them really scared, whether we were able to do that. And we were remembering some of our old scary teachers when we were at school. I remember, I'm sure that each of you could tell stories about some of your scary teachers. Most of us as teachers think that, well, uh, we, we, we were pretty confident that we could do uh, scare an entire class. I mean, that's part of the course sometimes that uh, a class has misbehaved and sometimes we have to give them a, a little bit of a telling off. Um, uh, maybe a whole year group. So that's 60 to 100 students. We could scare them, tell them off, get them really worried. And, and, and the, the benchmark there was that they would leave in silence without needing to be told. So after telling them off, they would leave in silence just on their own volition. But a whole school, that takes something. That takes someone who has that authority, that scariness. And I wonder whether you remember or whether any of your teachers were like that. In my last school, as uh, part of the Young Enterprise, uh, uh, which was a school uh, entrepreneurial program, my students produced uh, what we call top trump cards. Um, and those of you who can actually see the PowerPoint can see that this was mine. Well, they actually produced two top trump tr cards. Uh, this one, you can see my strictness rating is at 44. So that's 44%. And on another set of cards that they produced a couple of years earlier, my strictness rating was at 70. And they, they were a little bit baffled by this. How can one set of uh, cards say that my strictness rating is at 70 and one is at 44? And I had a quick look at the data, the, uh, the questionnaire that they put out, um, and I found that I actually had students who were in two categories. Those who put me at about 20 or 30% and those who put me 70, 80% in terms of strictness. And I realized that this was a difference between those students who I had ha actually taught who didn't think I was strict and those who saw me out and around telling people off ball, running in the corridor or tucking in their shirts. And usually I would kind of, you know, tell you know, in the corridors. I mean, this was a different culture. I'd bellow at the, uh, the students for kind of arriving to, to lessons late. And so they thought I was very strict, especially those who, who didn't know me. But once they got into the classroom, once they realized uh, that if they followed the rules, everything would be fine, everything would be safe, uh, then they didn't think I was strict because they didn't feel the need to break the rules. Well, most of them anyway. Uh, and so they, you know, they didn't see that stricter side of me. Once I'd established that kind of uh, that order, they, they thought I was very, very nice. And I hope they still do. Um, does depend on the class, obviously. It depends on how uh, uh, poorly they behave. Now, when was the last time that you were actually scared of someone in that way? 
Was it uh, a boss that you had? Was it one of your teachers? Perhaps it was a colleague. And was it a good kind of scared where you were scared, but mostly, you know, you knew that if you were on their right side, you were, it was fine. And if you, you knew how, where you stood with them and everything was fine, but you knew not to cross that line. Or was it you know, a bad kind of scared? They were always, they're always losing their temper. Last week, we looked at God being the lion who roared or the lion who is roaring. That is the God who has declared judgment through Amos and holding the nations accountable to their sins. Now, I've commented before that some, sometimes I think that we as Christians can learn a lot from other religions and how much uh, they fear they fear God. And I think that sometimes as Christians, we don't fear God enough. And as we read Amos and the declaration of judgment on Israel, I think that we are left with a taste of that. That we should fear God. Now, there are very good reasons that why we should uh, love God too and also not be afraid of him. But that fear of God is something that is preached throughout the Bible. Now, let me read Amos 3. So if you've got your Bibles, please do follow Amos 3. Hopefully we are just about to get the, uh, just about to get the uh, PowerPoint working. Let me read out. Israel's guilt and punishment. Hear this word of what the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord does nothing without revealing his secrets, secret to his servant, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the strongholds of Ashdod and the strongholds of the land of Egypt, in the land of Egypt, and say, assemble yourselves in the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and, oppressed, and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord, an adversary will surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds will, shall be plundered. 
Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people, uh, so shall the, the sorry, uh, so shall the people dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the Lord of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. So last week we learned about the owner of uh, this owner of sheep, this well-spoken man from Judah who had traveled to Israel to, to reveal God's judgment. This is Amos. To the priests and holy men at Bethel, really not the right man that they would listen to. But God uses the most unusual of men and women. He started off well, calling out the, the crimes of the nations surrounding Israel. The sins, their war crimes, their selling people into slavery, their broken treaties and their broken promises, their blood bonds. And we see if we look at a map that the circle of nations he's calling out surround Israel and get move in an ever decreasing ring until it passes judgment on Judah. And finally, the greatest and most personal judgment he delivers on Israel. Amos calls them out for far more personal crimes than those from nations around them. And these would have hit home to each individual. The laws that God had given them, which specifically addressed hospitality and looking after the poor, about, keep, uh, about sexual sins and keeping God's nation and his temple holy. And then as we look into chapter three, It starts with these words. O people of Israel against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. So yeah, this is the family that he rescued. You only have I known of all the families on the, of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. As I said last week, we could hear the anguish in God's voice. You only have I known is a very much an image that is repeated all the way through the prophets of the bride of God who has continually again and again cheated and betrayed God who has chosen other gods over him. He chose this nation to be unique and special among all the nations to describe, to uh, give his glory. He blessed this nation and he gave them his laws to live by. His laws not to keep them back, but to make them flourish. 
in the Old Testament, the laws are seen more as father's advice rather than our very black and white ideas of do not do this. This is father's advice so that they can flourish. So what follows here in verse 3 all the way to verse 6 are rhetorical questions. Questions that you should answer yes. And I know you can probably pull holes in it. There's a snare here uh, come up. If there's nothing, nothing to be taken, yes, sometimes if something has triggered it. But the idea is that this is supposed to give us, yes, this happens. Yes, this happens. And finally, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Yes. People will be afraid. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Yes, the people of Israel need to be afraid. But are they? We know from history that they weren't. The lion has roared. God's patience has reached its end and judgment is coming, but did they pay attention? No, and that should be a warning to all of us. If the lion is roaring, if judgment is declared to be coming, and the Bible says it is, then we need to pay attention. And that's what we see in the next few verses, and most uh, clearly spelled out in verse 11. An adversary shall surround the land and bring you, down your defences from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. When God speaks, we know that it will be fulfilled. And even though at this time, the uh, Israel was flourishing economically, they had conquered some other nations, they were flourishing economically, their harvest was good, they were growing in just a few years, there would be a rise of a nation, the nation of Assyria, and that would become powerful and it would sweep away Israel, the northern kingdoms. You see, when the lion roars, you had better be afraid. Now, at this point, I want to point here, I want to point out this, how ironic this is that God has chosen Assyria to pass judgment on Israel. And I wonder whether, well, we are back in church, so I wonder whether I could ask the congregation here, anyone who knows why it's so ironic that Assyria passes judgment uh, or is God's tool to pass judgment on Israel. Does anyone know? Hands up. And I'm... I'm a little bit disappointed in those people who are in the men's Bible study, why they don't know this. I know that there's five people from the men's Bible study. Adrian's a bit busy trying to set up the PowerPoint. But why is it that it's so ironic that Assyria is God's tool for passing judgment on Israel? Now, I'm going to keep, not going to put you out of your misery, certainly the men, okay? Not long before the, uh, the uh, events of Amos, a certain prophet left Israel. Remember that Amos came from Judah to preach to Israel. And so 
and was rejected. Now, a prophet from northern Israel went to a certain town, sorry, a certain city, capital city of Assyria. Do we know what the, the, the capital city of Assyria was? Nineveh. Ah, I see a, ah. And that's what I like as a teacher, that ah moment. Yes. Instead of going to Nineveh as he was told, what did he do? He went to Joppa and tried to flee to the other side of the earth. And, and then jumped, had to, was thrown into the sea, swallowed up by a big fish. If you don't know by now, well, it's Jonah. And we can see that here. Jonah and Amos around the same time. Jonah preached in Nineveh just years, a few years before Amos. We don't know the exact dates, but we figure it was just before. It could have been at exactly the same time. They certainly lived at the same time. Jonah was one of these complacent prophets in Israel. And Israel uh, was you know, not calling out Israel for its sins, really. And what happens next, you can see. Israel falls because of the rise of Assyria. You can see that here. What's the difference, though? Two prophets went to a nation not their own and preached judgment. And what's the difference? Nineveh repented. Straight away, they repented. The ruler, before even meeting Jonah, tore his clothes and wore sackcloth and declared you know, days of mourning and repentance. What did Israel do? Nothing. And what happens? Nineveh was saved. So even though when we read Amos, there is judgment and there is doom being called, if they had known their history lessons, if they had known, looked around what was going on, they'd seen what happened to Nineveh, they would have known what, how to react. In fact, they did know how to react because they have it in their history books. Through the, the kings, the prophets, those, those who repented, those who cried out to God were saved. Those who cried out to God in Egypt were saved. Those who cried out to God in the desert were saved. Those who cried out in the prophets. God sent a prophet, uh, um, a prophet to, uh, to save them, one of the judges. Those of us who are Christian know this better than anyone. Romans 3.23 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, this was a foreshadowing of the gospel. When God calls for repentance, or when God says that he is going to uh, judge the people, this is the creator God of whom we should be afraid. When he is saying that judgment is coming, there is one solution, to repent. This is a foreshadowing of the gospel. Jesus came 
to preach repentance and forgiveness of sins. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But even for us Gentiles, there is salvation. For the Ninevites, the Assyrians, there was salvation, and that is found in repentance. For when we are called out for our sins, and I don't know about you, but God uh, calls me out regularly for my sins. When I read the Bible, when I listen to sermons, when I prepare a sermon, God calls me out for my sins. Our reaction is, should be to be afraid, not to be complacent, not to ignore it, to be afraid and to repent. This is why sermons should be difficult to listen to. And when I give a sermon, I am not just challenging you guys as if, kind of, as if I've got it all right. Or as I, if I, yeah, as if I'm living a comfortable life and I'm looking from on high and challenging you. This is what I do. You should do this. I think that is something that is always called out on Christians for being hypocrites. I don't want you to think that of me at all. Every time I prepare a sermon, it is so that it can, I can challenge you with the same challenge that I feel. Because if I am not challenged when I prepare a sermon, I should not really be giving it. And I am sharing that with you, the challenge that I have. God calls us out for our sins when we read his Bible. Obviously, on, in other uh, areas as well, when we encourage one another as Christians, when we rebuke one another as Christians, or just in creation. Sometimes it's funny, isn't it? Because sometimes non-Christians will rebuke us. And we think, oh, what a terrible witness to God I am. How I've sinned. And that should make us even more shamed when they call us out for, uh, for our sins. But our reaction should not be to ignore it or dismiss it. I have a friend who I uh, challenge uh, occasionally. And when I first met her, she kind of would react as soon as I would say, you've been selfish this, this kind of in this situation. And I do expect the same from her to me, but, you know, when, when I first met her, she would react, you know. And I said, you know, as Christians, that shouldn't be our reaction. The first reaction should be, is that really what I've done? Yes, we are selfish. We are sinful. We should have friends who call us out. We should develop those brothers and sisters who will call out our sin. And we should keep looking to the Bible. And this is a great punishment, not great as in wonderful. This is a terrible punishment that God is bringing on Israel. Read this. I put it in bold up here in verse 12. As the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs, 
or a piece of an ear. That's what's going to be left of Israel. Can you imagine a whole nation being drawn into exile, being conquered, being pillaged, and what is rescued? Just imagine going to, you know, going to rescue what's left after a lion has mauled an animal. Two legs, just two legs, or even just a piece of an ear. That's what he brings back. And we were looking at uh, the Good Samaritan, the Samaritans. What was left of the Samaritans? Just a shadow of its former nations. And what was then brought into the kingdom of God? The Samaritan woman and her village. That is the remnant. So shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued. What does it say here? With the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Some of you have seen devastation, maybe a, a hurricane or a tornado, lifting a house, or in Australia, the, the, uh, the fires, or in California, or in the tsunami. I've never faced that kind of dev devastation, unfortunately. Well, fortunately, I'm blessed by God in that sense, but I've seen. The videos, I've seen the pictures, I can just, I, well, I can't imagine what it would be like for that to be your home, your house. What's left? The corner of a couch and part of a bed. That is what's going to be left of Israel. What's going to be left of their Glory that they see now, the comfort they see now. Remember that Israel is experiencing an economic boom at this time. The corner of a couch and part of a bed. It's a shadow of their former glory. So let me read this from verse 13. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altars shall be cut off and fall to the ground. Now, those of you who know your, your Bible history know that going running into the altar, especially in the tabernacle, if you hold on to the horns, you have sanctuary. But the horns of the altar here shall be cut off and fall to the ground. There is no sanctuary anymore. Not even in the house of God. God will cut them off from finding sanctuary because they have betrayed him far too many times. Not that they would even seek that. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house. They were so comfortable that they had two houses. Do you know people who have two houses? A winter house and a summer house? How wonderful is that? How comfortable is that? God will strike those down as well. And the houses of ivory shall perish. And the great houses shall come to an end. Remember that at this time, those who are wealthy, those who are rich, those who are comfortable, were those, those who are seen to be blessed by God. 
people looked up to those people and thought that those people were blessed by God. God will destroy them as well. So what do we learn? When the great lion roars, we should be afraid. And we have just one course of action that will save us. Repentance. It worked for heathens in Nineveh. If it works for them, it can work for us. And now we understand more about the mechanics of this, don't we? When we repent, our sins are carried away by the substitutionary sacrifice of our Lord Jesus on the cross, dying that we might live. Judgment will still come. So if these people in Israel had, we've seen this before, that God declares judgment on Israel. We see it in the Kings. If you read Kings, God declares judgment on Israel. And some good Kings repent and call their, their, the, the nation to repent. And what happens? They are saved. Maybe a generation, maybe until the next King. Judgment is delayed, but judgment happens. God's word does not fail. God does not lie. Judgment will come, and judgment will come to all of us. As we looked at in, in the, the start of January in Revelation, the book of the names, book of judgment will be open, and our names will be in it. But if we are saved, then we are in a separate book as well. God opens up a separate book, a book, the book of life. And if we are in that, then the first book, our judgment on us from the first book is completely ignored, completely wiped away. And so when you hear the gospel, we should be fearful because none of us are without sin. But also we need to realize that we are safe. If we turn to God in repentance and acknowledge the, uh, the forgiveness that he offers through Jesus. Let me pray to close. Father, when we read that we should fear you, let us take it seriously. Let us fear you, Lord, because you are the creator God. You are the God who will take an accounting of the sins that we have committed. But also, Lord, help us to love you, love you even more as we grow to know more about the great things that you have done for us providing for us such comfort and forgiveness and a way to a relationship with you and a certain place in heaven. Lord, help us to preach all of you when we witness for you, not just the God who saves, the God who uh, is a loving God, but also the God who we should be afraid of. 
let us pray, let us look to you and know all of you, and only by then we should love you more. In Jesus' name, amen.